Yama, I'm Bo Spiram. Welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go on any further, I would like to pay my respects to the country on which this podcast is being recorded and where my guest and also you mob are listening from. I also like to pay my respects uh, to all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to resist and fight and survive. Uh, and I would also like to pay my respects to all mobs across this beautiful continent. In each episode, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books and oral histories which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. Uh, my guest, Dr. Marikio Smith, is a proud Yuan and Japanese woman, a museum curator, visual sociologist, and a historian. Uh, me, me and Marikio have been chatting for quite some time to, to get on the podcast, uh, also the team that she works with, uh, who created the amazing Unsettled Exhibition, which we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, this is a very special episode because it's going to get us over the line to 100,000 downloads, and I just want to give a big shout out to everybody that has listened, that has shared, that has donated, uh, that has just done everything, any, anything and everything to make the uh, podcast reach the platform that it has uh, so far. Uh, you know, I just want to say a big gabayinda from the bottom of my uh, heart to everybody out there that has done it. Please do your best to continue to support this because this year I'm going to grow it bigger, much better and deadlier uh, as well. Um, also just noting that uh, uh, the, the audio that I'm playing in this particular episode was recorded on the 26th of January and I do apologize uh, for not putting it up anytime sooner, but you know how life goes. Uh, I do hope you enjoy this yarn with myself uh, and sister uh, uh, Marikio. Uh, we chat about a broad range of uh, things that happened in the first 140 years. And the reason why that we chat about that is because the exhibition that she's a part of, Unsettled, uh, really depicted and represented uh, uh, this uh, uh, period of time and also these uh, uh, these events that happened in different parts of the country. So, um Jamugi Yurubini, Ninjiwan, good evening, everyone. So first I would like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the unceded sovereign lands of the Guy of the Wanangini Nation in the northern suburbs of Sydney, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present. So, um, yeah, my name is Mariko. Smith's my married name, but I'm a Ralph originally, so that's my father's family. We're Ewan mob. Our ancestral lands are around the Kaowan area on the New South Wales South Coast. So Kaowan is where um, one of those big bushfires were was um, in the 2020 bushfire season. And uh, But our family moved around a lot. So they moved up to Nambucca Heads um, around the early 1900s and then also to Sydney as well. Um, and I grew up on the Central Coast. Um, my, name is, my first name is Japanese because my mum's from Japan. So that's a little bit about me. Um, thanks for having me on the program tonight, Bo. Um, I know that you and I have been trying for a while to have um, myself and also my Australian Museum colleague, Laura McBride, on your podcast. So, you know, Laura is a Whalewine and Kuma woman and director of First Nations at the museum. So I'm here tonight representing the both of us as the curators of the First Nations-led and informed Unsettled exhibition. Deadly. Um, and that's something that... I guess we'll kick off with as well, but I just forgot to introduce myself. So, yeah, my name is Bo Spiram. I'm Gumaroi Kuma and Marawari. 
Uh, my old man uh, is from Moree. He was born on a mission. My mum is from Brewarrina. Uh, a lot of her family come from a reserve just outside of Brewarrina, but later moved in to the mission uh, called Dodge City at Brewarrina. Uh, we were born in Western Sydney, um, a place called Blacktown. Grew up in that area before moving up here to Brisbane. Um, been up here ever since. Uh, moved up here on our seven. This is home. Uh, but, you know, still go for, you know, the mighty New South Wales um, uh, every, every you know, origin uh, season when it comes around. Um, but, you know, myself and, you know, my siblings who, who grew up here in Brisbane, we do, you know, call ourselves and, 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 and uh, involve ourselves in the, in the yarn of being a Brisbane black as well. I'm a very, you know, um, honoured and, and very thankful to be a part of this amazing community up here in Brisbane as well. Um, so we'll just kick it off. Straight away, sis. Um, yeah, no worries. Back in, um, was it 2020, you were supposed to kick off the actual uh, Unsettled exhibition, uh, but obviously due to COVID, uh, lots of things got in the way. But for anybody on this, uh, on this live that is unaware of the Unsettled exhibition, could you tell us a bit about that? Oh, yeah, I'll, just, I'll give a brief snapshot. Um, it's a huge project. It started off in... 2018 in the lead up to the 250th anniversary of Lieutenant James's James Cook's journey on the Endeavour along the east coast of what is now known as Australia. And so back then, um, a number of cultural institutions were looking towards um, putting up a exhibition or programming around um, Cook. Um, and so the 2020 project came about at the um, Australian Museum. So um, museum appointed Laura McBride as the curator. And um, Laura um, decided that, look, if she was going to take this um, opportunity, it was important to um, work with First Nations from the very beginning and consult and um, get information to find out what Mob actually wanted out of this exhibition, um, you know, going beyond the legacy of Cook towards the legacy of colonisation. Mm. Yeah, um, I missed out on coming down when you had the opening. Uh, I think it was due to COVID and a bunch of other things uh, that came up. But uh, for everybody yeah, just listening as well, what were some of the, the pieces within that exhibition? Oh, so we got like a number of, um, you know, cultural objects um, from the Australian Museums collection, uh, but also, um, you know, new ones too um, commissioned and acquired from community, um, including South Coast Mob. So uh, we worked with South Coast Mob to tell a story about the signal fires that were lit all along the eastern coast. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, just speaking of South Coast Mob, um, you know, with, with COVID was one reason for delays, but also... Um, you know, at the time when we were uh, developing the exhibition, the South Coast were, um, you know, one of the many areas experiencing those devastating bushfires. So, you know, we're working with community and, um, yeah, it was, um, you know, that was a really tough time. And so uh, we were just, you know, really mindful of that. And um, it was good that we could get the date pushed out to help accommodate um, mob and, yeah, and also COVID as well. So giving us a bit more time to, yeah, develop all those themes and topics. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned before, you know, we wanted to talk a bit about uh, the Frontier Wars uh, and also the other significant dates on the 26th of January. But before we talk about that, as you just mentioned, um, the Unsettled Exhibition exhibit, sorry, uh, was set up as as a First Nations response, I guess we could say, uh, yep. 
into the the celebration of Cook and the Endeavour. Um, could you, yeah, tell us a bit about uh, the response of of Ewan Mob and other Aboriginal mob in 1770? Uh, what was their response to Cook? Yeah. Um... Well, that's something that came out in our community consultation, and that's um, that full report's available on our website, and I'd love for you guys to read it. Um, so that yeah unpacks uh, a lot, you know, the questions asking Bob what they thought about Cook and um, what they would like to know, and um, for many that they wanted to know about colonization and its effects. Um, you know, what happened started with Cook in 1770 and went from on from there to. The first, the first fleet coming um, 18 years later, and, you know, obviously today's that anniversary. And um, Mob wanted to find out, like, why was the decision made to um, to colonise um, here, here and, um, you know, what was the involvement of Cook? Like, you know, Cook was dead by the time the first fleet came. So, yeah, it was really just trying to find the answers to, um, in all these ho holes and gaps in our history, like, it, it goes to show... What we were taught at school is is very different to what is truth, and also what is known. Um, you know, particularly for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, we, we have a lot of you know knowledge from our family and community mm. histories that mainstream Australians don't know about. Well, I think that's one of the one of the amazing things, and one of the things that I've always loved about sort of history, our history. You know, um, and 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 one of the reasons why I really pushed to create the podcast is because we one we hear about a side that we that we don't know of and two we hear about just how resilient how smart and how just deadly you know our mob were during that whole process uh, of invasion you know invasion still continues but I guess in these earlier sort of stages of colonization um, you know when cook was sailing up the east coast, what were mob doing? You know, were they communicate with each other? You know, obviously at one point along that sort of that sort of stretch that Cook went, he obviously fired and stole some stuff off the mob. Yeah. What were mob doing? Were they communicating with each other? Yeah, and that's something we tell in our signal fire section with um, South Coast mob. So um, yeah, for my country um, down like Ulladulla Way, um, Durath Point, um, working with community who were are the descendants of those who, you know, um, were there at the time in 1770 and lit those signal fires. And so um, the Living Legacies immersive experience film that we show in that space uh, talks about the um, sort of messages received through um, messenger birds, um, our totems, um, and also with the um, the signals going all around of, of the coast with fire. And so Cook and his crew did um, note in their journals about seeing smoke and fire, but they lacked the cultural knowledge um, about to know that this was essentially an emergency response system in place. Mm. So mob were communicating in all sorts of ways, so through, through their totems, um, but also like through um, their signal fires and messengers who would go inland. We hear a lot about the coastal journeys, but also there were messengers going inland as well to those mobs mm. out there. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, if there's anybody that's sort of unsure about uh, uh, what, what we're talking about, you know, if you can imagine, I'm sure everybody here, and I hope so, has seen Lord of the Rings, you know. I always bring this up as an example. In one part of, you know, the movie, they light their um, signal fires on top of mountains. 
um, you know, and each, you know, once one is lit, you know, the, the next mountain or the next sort of section is lit as well. So this is essentially what, what was happening uh, in this case on the east coast of Australia. Uh, and, and what we do know from some of the records and like the latest podcast on Frontier War Stories when I spoke to a former politician and archivist, uh, Michael Organ, he mm. mentioned that uh, they recorded on Cook's ship um, uh, the mob in Sydney were actually like, hey, you know, go away, go away to Cook's mob. Yeah. Um, you know, one, you know, one reason why they said it like that is because maybe they've experienced uh, outsiders uh, of violence towards Aboriginal people because we all know there was, you know, a whole host of different white fellows that came to Australia uh, previous before the British and Cook. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the amazing things as well, sis, and I'll, I'd love for you to talk about this part as well, is, you know, the communication of the mob uh, through the signal firing, you know, essentially went from one part of the East Coast to the other. When it went as far north, you know, um, and I think this is in the exit in, in Unsettled, yep. uh, is the interaction uh, with the Torres Islander mob. Could you tell us a bit about that part? Yeah, no, definitely. That's, um, yeah, that story was just great. Um, I've, I had the absolute privilege of yarning with um, a Karag First Nations um, people's elder um, Uncle Warburn Richard Aiken, and it was an absolute privilege talking to him. He's a senior elder and the um, appointed tribal historian for his mob. And he talked about how they knew when Cook was up. So, you know, Cook was up there around August 1770. They um, completed going up the East Coast and they were just trying to find their way um, through to westward towards like Indonesia. And uh, Uncle Warburn was telling me how. Uh, they knew that um, something was coming. They had the warnings through um, the signal fires and messengers and um, they call it, you know, he called it a black fellow internet. And so okay. the warriors were waiting. They were just waiting um, for the ship to come. And he said that if the, the men had, you know, disembarked, Cook and his crew had disembarked, um, the warriors were waiting for the signal. And if they were given the signal, they would have speared Cook and his crew. And, um, and then with Cook, because, um, yeah, they've got the trade networks of like Papua New Guinea and other parts of Pacific. Um, yeah, because the Karag First Nations people, um, they would have speared him and cut off his head, boiled it up and traded it um, with Papua New Guinea because white meat was a very prized meat at the time. And I so, don't think that meat would be good though, would it? No, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't think so myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that that's um, so we we talked about how the, yeah, the signal fires and the messengers, the reach went very um, wide, and the fact that yeah, you got contested possession. Um, people know about Cook. Um, he wrote in his journal on the 22nd of August that he made did all this big, you know, pomp and ceremony um, possession um, on what he called Possession Island, which is um, the Karag First Nations people's island. They call it Tuanid, um, among many other names. And, um, yeah, and, and what Uncle Warburn was telling me was just it did not happen. They dispute Cook's record. And um, he actually said, you know, Cook cooked the books, where <laughs> um, he uh, it, it's likely that he put in post uh, the event um, the record into his journal and after the fact, you know, it, it didn't happen. He just inserted it in later. So mm. just fascinating um, yeah, finding it I, I, I think it was in the, the interview that you did with him or some video footage of Ankh and he's talking about how one of the reasons you can tell that uh, they never made it to 
you know, our islands or he never planned the flag was he just got to look at the painting and, you know, the painting is of like main, uh, uh, mainland trees, sort of a mainland uh, environment as well. Um, you know, and, and this is why I love sort of this history is because, as I mentioned, we never taught about it and, you know, people just forget how, you know, resilient uh, our mob, you know, ha- were and still are, you know, to this day um, to communicate you know, at that speed over you know, vast amounts of, of country and to prepare yeah. as well, you know, um, is is something uh, within itself as well. And if we could fast forward, you know, a bit, you know, sure. um, to around uh, 1770, uh, yeah. sorry, around 1788, you know, when the first fleet landed, um, you know, were there any interactions initially when they sort of come ashore or was it... Uh, after once they sort of set up the colony. Oh, so it was 1788. Um, well, yeah, so we, we do refer to, like, for example, um, William Brad... Um, oh, yeah, we, we, there was an account here about um, one of the colonists um, was noting in his diary about um, how the ab- um, Aboriginal people noticed them visiting and um, they thought maybe, you know, that these visitors will soon pass. Um, but when um, they observed that the... Um, the people were setting up camp and clearing trees and that sort of thing. That's when they were, they very much wanted um, these strangers to go. So that was Lieutenant William Brad- Bradley. So he mm-hmm. said, you know, the natives were well pleased with our people until they began clearing the ground of which they were displeased and wanted um, them to be gone. Uh, so yeah, it was, I think they were maybe expecting like just, this might be just a temporary stop pit stop and then mm-hmm. going on, but they were very much keen to stay on these, um, the colonizers. Yeah, well, one thing that I find interesting, and I'd really love to like, you know, delve into this more in the podcast is is like Aboriginal governance and how our governance sort of structures really, um, uh, what's the word? Really, it, it sort of you know our governance structures really looked at how uh, we would build relationships uh, amongst ourselves, obviously, yeah. and how we would sort of do everything that we would to not um, commit violence or to not, uh, 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 sorry, commit conflict amongst each other. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, from talking to a bunch of historians and, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, Aboriginal mob about it as well, one of the things that they always say that... Um, that happened when these white fellows come is mob did everything that they could do to sort of mitigate violence and conflict between each other to the point where, you know, as you mentioned, they, you know, we, you know, the mob thought, oh, no, they're just going to camp here for a bit and then move along. Obviously, yep. once they started destroying land, um, harming, you know, um, Aboriginal bodies, you know, whether it's children or women or elders, yep. um, then that sort of kicked off violence uh, uh, in different parts of Australia once it spread as well. Um, did, yeah. did, did you did you find that out? Um, uh, have you come across that uh, um, at all through your studies or you know, through this exhibition in terms of how, you know, how, um, I don't want to say the word generous because, you know, that, like that always gets taken for granted. Obviously, in this occasion it did, but, you know, mm. like we did everything that we could, you know, to, to not have conflict and I says I think that says a lot about a people you know yep. um and you know we've been around you know for as long as anybody else um continually on on this planet you know so I think 
you know, there needs to be some sort of respect put on that as well. But through your studies, have you found out much about sort of yep. why? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, so there's a few, yeah, it was like I've just got so many things in my head to say. I might, um, this might be a multi sort of answered um, response. There's a lot to get through here where, um, yeah, I mean, um, it, particularly like from our recognising invasion section, which deals with, you know, the um, 1770 and leading into uh, the decision for the plans for the colony and then also fighting wars, which um, is a section that looks at frontier wars in the exhibition. Um, yeah, we, we, we look at that whole, you know, that concept of, you know, Aboriginal society, we had these, you know, processes and structures in place where um, if we had visitors come, if they followed, you know, proper process and protocol, you know, there's very much that, that um, you know, capacity where there could have been some sort of agreement or, you know, if, if visitors came and they respected law and and um, and culture, then they might have, you know, there, there might have been something very different to, I guess, what happened afterwards with the violence and, and the conflict and the disrespect. So um, we, we have this beautiful um, installation, storyboat installation by a Torres Strait Island artist, um, Glenn Mackey. And it's... Um, it looks at the whole co concept of like coming into country the right way. And he tells us through his um, great, great grandfather story. He, um, his great grandfather, great, great grandfather came from, he was an American, um, came after the American civil war and he married into Bob and lived in community and he didn't try to colonize them or anything. And so he showed how you can um, come in and um, come into country the proper way. And, and it, it addresses that what people say about, Oh, if it wasn't the British, it would have been, the Chinese or the French or the Spanish. And it's like, well, no, we had proper processes. And um, we had, you know, communal decision-making as well. And that's something we tell about through the breastplates collections we have at the museum and how, you know, people like Governor Macquarie tried to cherry-pick who in community um, he wanted to deal with. And this disregarded that uh, traditional structures of communal decision-making by, you know, not just one person, but, you know, groups of elders mm. and this whole divide and conquer mentality that's set in. And so... Can I just ask something yeah. about that as well? Sure. I remember I was talking to a historian just recently and it's in one of the podcasts, damn, it's just gone over my head which person I was talking yeah. to. But, he, but, but they mentioned in regards to, like, the breastplates um, and, um, and how it's always similar in terms of who they give the breastplates through the name, like they give it, they call him Billy. Um, yeah. And, and he was saying that it was sort of, uh, mocking, you know, like, oh, you know, this is coming from the King, King William, uh, the, the, the whatever. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, you're important like him, we'll just call you Billy. Uh, but mm. it was, but as you mentioned, you know, I mean, it, like these plates were sort of given to sort of divide um, the, the 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 sort of I don't want to say leadership, but sort of the 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 um, the onus of sort of you know uh, uh, the mob and, and give that to sort of an individual. But have you come across that as well, where the the breastplates sort of seemed <clears throat> obviously and and you know I mean obviously a lot of mob hold that in high regard and you know I don't disrespect any mob who sort of still have you know their old people's uh, yeah. breastplates but have you heard that anywhere as well where uh that they were sort of given out you know and they were given the sort of name billy that was short like short for william um yep. and it was sort of like a like a mockery to sort of our first nations people oh 100 percent. i mean yeah we we're very mindful when we wrote the label about that that we do know it's a very complex history because yes there are mob who you know really do um 
like value these breastplates in their family. And we, we include one where it acknowledged uh, an Aboriginal man on the south coast, Shoalhaven Riverway, who saved the life of a white child from drowning. And so he was presented with um, this breastplate. And it actually is quite beautiful. It's got the engraving of the scene, like of the river and um, and to commemorate his bravery for saving the child. Um, but yeah, in terms of like the names, we did have ones like King Billy of um, King of the Rajari. Um, but in terms of like some of the names that seem quite derogatory, like one of the breastplates uh, we include is a sit of for a Sydney um, warrior by the name that he was called Kitten, and you just kind of go Kitten, like it's just um, why was that particular word used? You know, what, what do you think when you come up with Kitten? Like mm. it doesn't come to me to mind as a strong warrior, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah. uh, uh, this part of, of our yarn as well, I'd love to sort of get into, you know, some of the warriors that you sort of uh, come across uh, through that exhibition and also through your studies as well. Uh, yeah. One thing that, you know, uh, we can, you know, broadly say is that um, the majority of this country, some of our own mob, and I guess at one point in time ourselves as individuals as well, didn't grow up with the knowledge of sort of learning about First Nations uh, warriorship or, or First Nations warriors, um, you know. And when we do think of them, we only think of a handful. Um, I remember I was talking to historian Dr. Ray Kirkhove up here. Oh, um, uh, yeah, he goes, right, yep. yeah he goes, everywhere where, you know, Europeans went, where white fellows went, uh, uh, they were met with resistance. So everywhere in this country is just littered with warriors. It's just that we don't know their story. Um, throughout, you know, this exhibition, your studies, I guess you would have found a whole host of First Nations warriors from different parts of the continent. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we also focused on, like, um, Sydney warriors, you know, particularly because mm. the Australian Museum, yes, it's a national-focused museum being the oldest um, and the first public museum in Australia. But, yeah, we are situated in um, in Sydney, you know, in the southeast. So we do focus on, like, the Sydney wars. Um, so, you know, I guess I could start off there if that's okay. You know, we, sure we did focus on, you know, Pemelway um, in particular is, is uh, you know, an absolute hero. Um, you know, in Sydney, um, we also, you know, refer to how like Benelong, another very well-known um, Aboriginal person, you know, Benelong and Pemelway were traditional enemies, but they um, they had a two-week period where they spent together, I think, at um, Benelong's place, um, you know, where the Opera House now is, and they were planning um, the payback um, towards uh, the colony's gameskeeper, um John McIntyre for committing horrible crimes against um, Aboriginal people. And so uh, it was really interesting to, to learn about that history. Um, yeah, because like just um, my, my practice, you know, beyond museums is history. I love history and, you know, I'm practising as a, you know, a, a public history historian at the moment. And so, yeah, learning more about that um, and also sharing Penelway's story through the creation of the Deaf Spear with um, Bidjigal descendants, so mm. particularly with um, the grandsons of um, Uncle, um, the great late Laddie Timbury, um, Uncle Laddie Timbury, who um, is a master crafts maker in um, Sydney. And, yeah, like the the men, so I think it was Joel Deves um, and also Raymond Timbury who made uh, a Deaf Spear in the style that Penelway used to um, kill McIntyre. 
So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and then also like the war dance animation we worked on too, where we worked with um, Matt Doyle, um, who was a, just a great dancer um, and, you know, part of the Dawal community and referring to the colonial records describing war dances and and it made us learn, learn a lot more about how the warriors would adapt their mm. warfare tactics to um, the introduced weaponry. So, like, for the timing it took for a musket to be reloaded, Aboriginal people learned to attack in that, you know, 30 seconds or so. It took them to reload the muskets and to spear them from high ground. So, yeah, it was great learning about um, those experiences because, you know, it comes back to, the key message we're trying to say through the um, exhibition title of Unsettled is that Australia was never peacefully settled and um, there was warfare and resistance from the beginning. And so that's something we, um, yeah, we express very strongly through the fighting war section. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, you know, and, and you can see that um, across the country that, you know, it never was, you know, a settlement or a peaceful settlement. You know, it was always sort of carnage and destruction and and the rolling sort of tide of, of, of brutal colonial processes, you know, to every part of, of, of what is Australian now. Um, and, you know, from, you know, past sort of episodes, I remember chatting with Mob who, like, were saying like, that about, you know, 15 years after sort of the colony was set up, Aboriginal people were already a part of the convict system you know, yep. um, uh, the convict penal system without bringing white fellows over. Um, and, yep. you know, one of the things, to my surprise, is that uh, Australia uh, was used as an Indigenous prison um, settlement uh, for frontier figures in different parts of the world. So yes. New Zealand, Hawaii, I think South Africa, yeah, South Africa, yep. parts of the Pacific... You know, so Indigenous men were brought here. Uh, yes. Their punishment was that they would, you know, serve a, a, a whatever sentence, but then they couldn't go back home. You know, so where some of these convicts' prison settlements are and where their grave sites is, there's usually uh, Indigenous grave sites as well. Um, one of my guests, um, Kristen Harmon from the University of Tasmania. Oh, yes. Yep. No, her uh, work. Yeah. Has done some amazing work exploring uh, Indigenous uh, uh, convicts. Um, and she mentioned, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's Pakia herself. And, you know, when yep. she came over here, she wanted to explore the islands. She mentioned how she went to one of the islands of Tassie and, you know, she was reading sort of uh, a name that sounded Maori and she sort of, you know, delved into it a bit more and a bit more and then found out that, hey, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of, of Māori warriors that are, uh, are buried here. Mm. Um, she goes, if they're buried here, then I'm sure then there's other multiple Aboriginal people. Yeah. And, and another, you know, another sort of part that I found uh, intriguing and, and, and disgusted from as well is that I think it was in the 1850s, um, they were already investigating Aboriginal people dying in the convict system, so in, in yeah. so they're already investigating black deaths in custody. Wow! Um, you know, in the in 1852, I believe was she wrote. Um, you know, Aboriginal people were coming in at a high number uh, who were you know brutalised uh, by uh, uh, mounted police and uh, by mm. soldiers and chucked in these sort of prison conditions. Uh, some who were, you know, bloodied and sort of beaten would die from yep. infection. Some would die because of 
uh, the different foods that they were giving them and all these different uh, things were sort of happening and they were wondering, hey, wait a minute, why you know, why is this happening mm. at such a high rate? You know, we need to sort of lock, stop locking these black fellas up, you know, um, at this high rate because, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're just dying here oh, as well. Yeah. You, know, you know, last year being sort of the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission, Aboriginal deaths in custody, you know, this speaks volume that, you know, they haven't stopped locking us up and they haven't stopped killing us in prison at a high rate. You know, um, it's sort of business as usual mm. uh, with these institutions as well, which I want to That's talk about it. a bit more as well, yeah. Yeah, well, that leads into, like, from fighting wars section, it progresses into our remembering massacres section. And so that, like, looks at the, you know, the documented colonial massacres, particularly for, um, through the research of, um, University of Newcastle and Professor mm -hmm. Lyndall Ryan's team's work. And so we got a, a map showing that time lapse of how, as the, ex the colony expanded, the violence and the massacres just, um, it, it just spread. Um, but yeah, we also look at how from historic massacres, like they didn't end. I mean, the last documented one, yes, like 1928 Coniston massacre, but we've got modern day massacres in our, you know, police watch houses, in police custody, for, you know, deaths in custody as well. And so we use um, Tony Albert's beautiful stained glass window work, um, mm. the prodigal prodigal sons based on his brother's um photographic series um where you got an aboriginal male and he's got a target painted on his chest and so it, it's a way for us to sort of explore um that history for you know with the the massacres but also with um the targeting of um aboriginal people disproportionate targeting and also the um incarceration as well mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yeah yeah. So guess... It all covers a lot. Yeah we, yeah, we cover a lot in, um, you know, it's a lot of history, 250 years of history in one exhibition. I mean, we were fortunate that we had 1,000 square metres in the touring basement space. That was part of, like, I guess one silver lining of being delayed because of COVID and the bushfires was that um, – we had the down we got this blockbuster space because of the exhibition scheduling um some other shows had to reschedule or got postponed and we got that space and so um unsettled is just huge you know 190 objects and images across mm. a thousand square meters you know and telling a history like it's it's very much a linear sort of journey through chronologically from you know uh yeah, history throughout our, um, this country's history. Mm, yeah, um, I know today uh, my mob home uh, back home in Maureen, um, every year for quite a few years now, uh, they've uh, been mourning and sort of been marching through the streets of Maureen to honour and pay respects to the Waterloo Creek Massacre, which happened uh, 1838 on the 26th yep. of January. Um, yeah. You know, and this, you know, for our mob, uh, is is an important uh, an event because it sort of opens up most parts of Gumroy country one to to more and more land being given uh, to mm. pastoralists and to farmers and whatnot. But then also, what we do see is multiple series of massacres taking place as well. So um, from December uh, eighteen thirty seven, uh, Major Nunn uh, of the yep. New South Wales Mounted Police. Mm. Uh, was given uh, the mandate to hunt down five Gamilaroi warriors who, in separate occasions, killed, I, I believe it was five or a few different uh, uh, new, new squatters who just acquired land. Mm. And um, so for a month, you know, they were chasing these Gamilaroi warriors, you know, through different parts of home. And then, uh, like all massacres, 
Um, the massacre of, of Aboriginal people are all done on the banks of a river. Yeah. You know? And one thing that we do know about mob camping along rivers is, you know, they're having ceremonies, they're setting up a camp, so they're either getting ready to sleep or, or getting up. And one thing that we do know about massacres is it either occurs early in the morning uh, or the, you know, as mob are going to sleep, you know, as a surprise attack when, you know, we'll get them when they're sort of off guard. Oh, that's very strategic. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warfare yeah, strategy. Mm. Military people, um, you know, so they know how to, you know, orchestrate um, massacres and and sort of, you know, these these battle tactics on on Aboriginal people. But to say that as well, you know, Aboriginal people um, were very, you know, fought very valiantly across this continent in most parts, defeating, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, the Redcoats and the military yeah. and, and also Native uh, and also mounted police as well. Um, yeah, and, and then sort of after this massacre, five months later, mm. uh, what we hear um, is we, we see uh, Mile Creek happen. Uh, just yep. in Bingara. Um, and, and from chatting with Lyndall, uh, uh, Ryan uh, and her team, you know, uh, there's a possibility that some of the perpetrators are part of the Waterloo Creek Massacre also were a part of uh, the Mile Creek Massacre. And oh, right. from Lyndall yeah. as well, yeah. one of the things you say is majority of time if massacres are, are close in, in close proximity to each other, and then mm. the perpetrators are most likely the same individuals uh, as well. Um, yep. And and obviously people, if people don't know within the chat as well about uh, Mile Creek, it's one of the only times in the history of this country um, when the perpetrators who uh, committed you know her, her, an horrendous massacre on on elders, women, and children mm. uh, were convicted and hung. I think it was yep. out of 12, 11 were locked up, and then out of that 11, seven were hung, I think it yep. is. Oh, yeah, seven. So it was 11 went to trial, and then I think yeah. they had two trials, and then the second one, seven were um, sentenced to death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another thing about that is the land on which this, obviously the land, you know, where, where the mob got massacred is Gumroy land, or it, it yes. was then and it still is now. Yes. But the white follower who owned it, his name was Henry Dangar. Ah, uh, um, yes, so, yeah, Dangar, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so anyway. We know, we know him on uh, uh, my way, yeah, because we've got Dangar Island nearby. And yeah, that was, yeah, well, um, he, well, he purchased yeah. that back in so the day. Mm. Um, and so when he died, he was the richest person in the New South Wales colony. Um, and, and another thing about him was he started the Black Association. And what the Black Association was, was a group of very wealthy um, uh, white people who would um, engineer, I guess we could say, mm. uh, and, and work against any trials of massacres uh, that were being brought to sort of, you know, the courts and stuff. Yes. Um, so they would pay you know, uh, for the lawyers. So they pay for the, you know, some of the best lawyers in the colony, I think, at the time to represent the 11 and then the, and then the seven uh, men who were hung eventually. Um, and, and, and one of the surprising things about this as well, and mm. um, earlier, sorry, late last year, there was a documentary made uh, called... I think it was for like African founding fathers, you know. Oh, um, yeah, yes. And, I, and I just want to talk about sort of the light that it sort of shone within uh, the documentary um, mm. and, 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 and 
you know, it didn't talk about sort of how people of colour were used as colonial tools to sort of uh, uh, um, harm and, and, and murder uh, 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 Aboriginal people. They're actually African mm. um, um, uh, men who are part of the massacre of Mark Creek as well. And one of the, and, and, and the reason why I just wanted to mention that is because mm. um, anywhere you go around the world, you know, if we're if we are of colour, you know, a, a person mm. of colour in somebody else's land, mm. we'll always be valued higher than the Indigenous population uh, of that land, you know, because yeah. our proximity, because of the uh, the closeness to sort of the colony um, and how, mm. you know, that, that could be used and valued as well. Um, but, but yeah, you know, looking through, you know, and that, like that, Mile Creek was very, one of the most important sort of massacres is because it was the only time in the history of this country where multiple people were tried, were found guilty, and were hung. Um, That's it. They had consequences for their actions. I mean, yeah, Mile Creek is very significant in it. Um, going forward from that trial, a code of silence set in, so that's mm -hmm. why you have a lot of these the massacres, you know, a lot of the planning went further underground and, like, just things were covered up and it was getting harder and harder to, you know, convict um, on that level again. And so we do um, tell that um, Mile Creek massacre story through lo um, loaning a document from State Library of New South Wales where it's a letter written by a Sydney sider to a relative in England and they were actually following the trial in 1838 and mm. um, writing about it and they ended up um, eyewitnessing this in the executions but yeah we we um thought it was really interesting to show this letter because you know we hear today people say things like oh well that's just things that people did in those times they killed people and but this eyewitness this writer actually acknowledged you know a group of innocent aboriginal men women and children were were killed with no provocation and it was just really wrong and so someone from that time even knew that that was you know, for want of a better word, it was really fucked up. You know? Yeah, funny so, you mentioned that as well because I was reading. Um, um, there's there's another episode that I wanted to do uh, on the podcast, and I was looking at sort of <laughs> some of the founding fathers uh, of Australia, uh, and one of the things that um, I wanted to mention, uh, I was reading some of uh, the uh, so some stuff online in regards to Angus McMillan. Yeah. Um, who you know? Who, who was a piece of shit? You know, yep. um, had a had a bunch of things named after him. Uh, the mob down there um, petitioned to get some of the stuff removed. They did. I think they changed the name of the electorate. I believe. No oh, good. Yeah. Um, if they haven't, you know, we should definitely get on and support their mob. But um, oh, I forgot the name of this this, this bloke's name actually. Mm -hmm. um, let me try and find it because I saved it in my – got my laptop here. Just bear with me, please, one second. Because, like, just how you mentioned, it's, all, it's just, like um, the language that they use within the time to describe um, our mob as well. Um, damn, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, while you're looking for that, I mean, I can comment a little bit more on that for you, Bo. Yeah, like oh, the language sure. is really – language is really key. Like with, um, you know, looking at um, – the colonial records regarding massacres, you know, the way they use the word dispersal in the archives as well. Like, you know, what, what does that mean? And what does that really say? Like it's mm. talking about killings, but I'm um, coming back to your point about how 
um, our mob have been described. And, you know, this comes all the way, goes all the way back to, you know, Cook and so Joseph Banks and others who the way they described mob in their um, their diaries and journals, um, that those accounts were used as ways to justify and legitimise the dispossession of Aboriginal people of their lands because, you know, they were described as, you know, passive, cowardly, People like Banks would said in one of his testimonies to British Parliament that, oh, the country is thinly peopled. We are surely not going to get any resistance from these blacks, and mm. um, and that's why even today Laura was telling me how she was in a cab once, and the cab driver, you know, when um they were having a yarn about, you know, they asked, oh, Laura said, oh, I'm Aboriginal, and and the cab driver's like, well, Aboriginal people in Sydney, um, they ran away. That's why we don't have any anymore, and like this um false. Mm constructed history um, that dates all the way back. You can see how the building blocks have started with the likes of Cook, um, so Joseph Banks, also James Matro, who was the one who, who crafted a plan for a colony. Um, and they were using all these descriptions about really derogatory statements about Aboriginal people. So, um, yeah, they could just um, justify the taking of the land. And um, that yeah. we have to mitigate these stereotypes and these perceptions even to this day. So mm, Totally. You know, and, yeah. And, and, yeah, you know what I mean? Like that's that superiority that is, has that is sort of shifted, uh, you know, from, you know, from Cook, from Banks, you know, from every other sort of high important white person back in the day to, you know, the everyday average Aussie person, uh, today and and then also anybody else that sort of calls this continent home, you know, very casually, people will sort of refer to us as abos mm. in a conversation, you know, when they're sort of when they've recently arrived to this country because that's how casual that name has been spoken to them, you know, openly around them uh, when they first got here as well. So you know, automatically it's going to go straight to that when we say, oh, we're black fellas, oh, he's a he's a abos. You know, like, mm. hey, wait a minute, Brass. No, this that's the wrong, you know, that's the most worst thing you could call an Aboriginal person. No, oh, yeah. I, I remember that thing. I forgot the bloke's name, but he was he was he was talking about um Angus McMillan and just sort of how brutal. Oh yeah, so yeah, you're looking process. it up in your laptop, yeah. So we won't yeah. forget that. Yeah. How brutal sort of that process was in terms of um you know, sweeping through and just, you know, um uh, uh, killing the mob, and I forgot the lad's name, but um, he was saying, you know, uh, what he was saying was it was very brutal the process that Angus uh, McMillan was using, mm. and, and then he, and then in, in, in like a drop of a hat, this is a letter he wrote, I think, back to his mob in, in Buddy England. Mm-hmm. And at the drop of a hat, he goes, oh, but you know, if 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 these blacks came on to my land, I would shoot them down like the dirty dogs that they are. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, there's this sort of you know him sort of empathising. Or sympathising with Aboriginal people and how brutal things are, but then him saying that, wait a minute, but if they muck with my territory and my land, mm. you know, they're going to get this, this and this, and this is what they are, you know. So, um, and then also um, one of the, you know, one of the things that um, that, that uh, I was young in the last episode as well was about um, um, Lachlan Macquarie and um, how he orchestrated the Appen massacre um, yes. and in the early stages. He wrote a secret letter to his to his military, to yep. his personal soldiers, saying, "You know, if willingly the, the the children and the women want to come, make sure we take them as prisoners prisoners of war." Mm. You know, and, and it's and it's interesting that um, he says those words. You know, obviously being the military person that he is, 
he would say those things. But, you know, the conversation around how Australia was taken, you know, it, it's never brought up as a military invasion. That's it. Well, thanks for raising um, Macquarie because I was actually going to lead into Macquarie because I just thought, look, it's a talking about Macmillan. Uh, I think the next logical step is to talk about Macquarie because, yes, we do um, talk about the Appen massacre and, like, you know, as you were saying earlier about the, you know, the military strategies at the time, like um, Appen massacre was a, a night raid. Um, mm. And so taking advantage of um, the period where people, men, women and children were, you know, peacefully asleep, even though, you know, Macquarie, yeah, we, we do um, have the original documents in Unsettled of um, Lachlan Macquarie's instructions to the commanders of the 46th Regiment where he was ordering the punitive um, expeditions because by this point, you know, in 1816, um, it's been years and years of Aboriginal resistance and Macquarie had decided he had enough of these hostile natives and that an example had to be made. And so that's how he went about his, you know, campaign of terror. And like you said, he was ordering, you know, um, people to be taken hostage. Um, he actually said, you know, directed the, for as many natives as possible to be made prisoners with the view of keeping them as hostages until the real guilty ones have surrendered mm. themselves or been given up by their tribes to summary justice. So, like, that aspect as well about how he was encouraging mob to, you know, turn on each other too. I mean, Macquarie, yes, he was, a, you know, a, um, a military man and he fought in, in colonial India. And I read a little bit about his exploits in, in India and, like, just the his attitude. I mean, it's it's like he was a man of his time, but just particularly brutal what he did with leading to Appen and um, also just the way he instructed his commanders. But um, so yeah, the other story I wanted to talk about was when you were saying about how um, this you know this treatment of Aboriginal people, criminal, callous treatment and how it became normalised. Um, we shared this through the Emily Cray diary um, in Remembering Massacres where Emily Cray is celebrated as, as the first white woman to have um, explored, like, the frontier around, you know, the Gulf of Carpentaria region, so the lands of the Wanyi people. Yeah. Um, and so she was staying at this homestead of um, someone named... Um, Frank Hahn, and Frank Hahn was a bloody piece of work. He's, um, he's been honoured with his name being named after things. I think the highway, there's a major highway that's been called the Hahn Highway, and this this um, asshole, for want of a better word, um, him and uh, a man named Jack Watson, they, they had um, 40 pairs of Aboriginal people's ears um nailed on the wall mm. to set an example because these um, Aboriginal people were stealing cattle. And the way Emily Cray wrote about them, you know, she was talking about in one sentence about how hot the day was and had to sleep outside. And then just the next sentence was, oh, yeah, Mr. Watson had these, you know, nailed on his walls collected from raiding parties. And she also wrote on another page about um, witnessing an Aboriginal woman being dragged in um, and chained up to a tree and then lamenting about oh why is this woman so unhappy with her life and it's like well I wonder why you know mm -hmm. yeah, and, and like normalizing this sort of lack of compassion towards Aboriginal people and like even to this day you know not trying to string a long bow but I kind of can see how you know people just don't emphasize with they see Aboriginal it's, it's all about dehumanizing that dehumanizing process that has undergone, you know, over these, these 250-odd years. I definitely, you know, I think once you, you know, take the humanness out of somebody's 
and the dignity out of out of who they are, and then the way that you know people outside of I don't know um, that race or, or or that community, you know, then you can sort of see how it's easy for these for people to sort of continually to see us as those you know uh, people. Um, now that you mentioned uh, uh, Wani and, and Garoa country. Uh, one of the, my latest episodes is with one of the big brothers that I grew up with here in, in Brizzy, brother Fred Leone. Um, and we, um, in that episode, had a yarn of his great-great-grandfather. It's an amazing story. You know, I urge uh, lots of people to listen to it. And if you meet up with him, ask him about his great-great-grandfather. Oh, cool. Um, and, and um, it, like, it, the, the thing about the story is he was told as a young boy, him and his siblings, by his grandmother. Um, and his great-grandfather survived three massacres, and in one of the massacre attempts, he rescued uh, his wife, who was kidnapped during mm. one of these massacres. That, you know, Uncle had to sort of, you know, like trek, I think it was like 14, 15, 16, maybe 20 Ks, you know, to, to the house and, and did that and, you know, uh, successfully got his wife back. And, you know, um, I think wow. it's... You know, it's an amazing story. I think heaps of people should listen to it. I always tell Fred, like, he should write a book about, you know, uh, his uncle, sorry, his great-grandfather. And one of the things as well, like, he was taught, he was told this when he was, like, you know, 11, 10, 13, like, really young. And then later on in his life, in his 30s, um, he got these two books by these historians who wrote about frontier conflict within sort of the Carpentaria, sort of Northern Territory area. Mm. And in each book that sort of uh, explains about these different massacres um, that, that, you know, that happened uh, and mentions his, his, his great-grandfather as well. Um, so definitely get on that, that episode with Fred Leone. Which oh, so, so, so many stories. Look, this is how the thing, you know, this is what we're trying to get out of Unsettled is there's so many of these untold hidden histories and, like, there's so, so many, like, beyond an exhibition. We need to know about these histories and stories and this is something like you know in our schools in media um the public Australian public need to know I mean it comes mm, back definitely. to like there's this quote by Stephen Oliver in you know that great documentary he did um in 2020 about looky looky comes cookie where he, mm. he says you know if we're going to talk about what it means to be Australian then we need to understand what Australia is and how it came into existence. And this quote just for me, today of all days, it's just really brings home like, what are we celebrating? What is being celebrated today? And like, um, what, what do people need to know? Like they need to understand um, how the, the, the legacy of the past has influenced the present state of affairs. Yeah. And we're at this point where we need to do something for not just the future of, you know, our people and our culture, like as Aboriginal people, but I think for the future and the future of all people on these lands, Australians as well, like just, mm. you know, the way that the environment has not been looked after and um, all the sort of inec social inequity issues. And, yeah, I mean, it's just like today I just spent today at home, you know, quietly reflecting and just, you know, kind of thinking about what is today other than just like, yeah, public holidays, a day off work, but what is today about and, and reading people kind of celebrating, what are they celebrating really? So this is, this is the first time in 10 years that I haven't actively sort of, you know, been a part of the organising and 
um, and, you know, just sort of being out there on the streets uh, for Invasion Day here. Oh, Brisbane yeah, I normally particular. go like the yard and that, but, yeah, it's just because of COVID. Yeah, too. yeah, 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 mm. yeah. So me and my partner mm. uh, got COVID, so, you know, we went into isolation and they get out to both. Oh, I hope you're feeling better, brother. Yeah. Oh, no, no, yeah, no, we're good. Well, you know, luckily we've got double jabs. But while you just sort of mentioned that part, I just thought it might be a good mm. um, sort of reason to plug the podcast. So if anybody is interested in learning about some of this history, uh, just Google Frontier War Stories, the podcast, and um, there's 28 episodes with different people uh, from you know, Aboriginal mob to non-Aboriginal mob, historians, artists, you know, a hip-hop artists and musicians who are talking about uh, stories of importance, whether it's their family or some stuff that they actually researched and, and, and put together as well. Um, well. We'll talk for a bit more. I'd love to talk for ages. You know, yeah, uh, I know, and I'm mindful of everyone still tuning in. But yeah, yeah like yeah, let yeah. me know whenever you want to wrap up. But I'm I'm happy yeah. to yarn a bit longer if you are. Yeah, you know, maybe we can take some questions soon because I, sure. I do see a bunch of requests coming through as well. But before we get to that, I'd love to sort of yarn a bit more about this sort of uh, um, about warriors. Um, yeah, and and, and like, um, do you know much about uh, female Aboriginal warriors? You know. I, the only one that I know of is Wally R from Tasmania. Um, and I know in Callum Clayton's, Dixon's book, uh, he mentions um, an Aboriginal woman, you know, going through Armadale with, um, you know, two handguns around her belt and like a rifle on her shoulder. Um, oh, deadly. Yeah. Um, um, but, but we don't hear that, you know, and obviously, you know, we're not going to hear hardly anything due to colonisation uh, and, and, and how they want to sort of, how they want us to look at history. But then also, you know, these these um, same explorers, I'm sure, you know, saw females as less than uh, um, 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 just anybody as well would see sort of uh, Aboriginal women or Aboriginal people in general back mm. then as well. But yeah, do, do you have you found many stories of uh, Aboriginal females? You know, obviously there were a lot. You know, um, there's. I'll just sort of plug another episode. In the episode that I did with yep. Joseph Toscano about the execution of Mulbahina and um, Tanaminawe, uh, there was those two, those two brothers, but then also there was three Aboriginal women. I think one of them um, uh, was, um, uh, I forgot her name. She's a real famous Tasmanian Aboriginal woman um, who they say is the last. Obviously, it's not because there's many Aboriginal Mm. women in Tassie that still exist and live today and doing amazing things. Um, uh, Truganini, I believe she was with them as well. And, you know, they yep. they executed like a six-week raid uh, around um, around the city of Melbourne. But, yeah, have you found any more accounts of Aboriginal women on uh, participating in fronting conflict? Because I know they would have. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, we, we look at, you know, also like resistance. I guess it's like how we define warrior as well. Like I always, yeah. we also include... Um, you know, the stories of amazing women, you know, who are resistance fighters. And so, you know, we, we include, you know, Truganini and how, you know, she fought for her culture and would, you know, um, never gave up her cultural beliefs, you know, notwithstanding the efforts by those missionaries. And, um, you know, she, she did everything she could to um, keep up her culture. But um, mm. one story that really stuck with me about, you know, really strong woman, and I call her a warrior, like she really yeah. stood up for culture, is um, Auntie Fanny Bolbuk from Noongar, um country. And so um, 
Arnie Fanny was, you know, protesting how, you know, like with with the, the devastation of country by colonizers in Perth and how um, important hunting grounds that sustained her people from, you know, time immemorial were built upon. And she was protesting the occupation of her traditional lands. And, you know, she would protest and front, stand in front of the entrance of government house in Perth and um, revile all those who lived behind those stone gates that enclosed her mother's burial ground. And and Ooh. also a great story about Aunty Fanny was with her wana, her digging stick, um, you know, she was really adamant about sticking to her traditional rights of way. So when she found that people had built houses and laid fences on her, on important tracks or song lines, she would actually just use her wana and break them down, walking through people's houses to follow her path. And yeah, I, I just feel like that's just really inspiring, right. you know, um, someone who just, you know, literally breaking, breaking through those, you know, foundations, colonial foundations to, um, it didn't phase her, you know. We might just wrap this up. Um, yeah, no worries. Um, and what I will do as well, if I can get the audio out from the Indigenous X mob, I'll make this an episode of Frontier War Stories. It's been a pretty long yarn, so I might chop it in half and maybe make it two episodes just so uh, no, no worries. Just sitting there listening to almost <laughs> a two-hour yarn. <laughs> but um, but thanks, you know, for everybody tuning in and, and sis, thanks for having this yarn uh, with us as well. It was good to sort of look at uh, you know, frontier conflict uh, pretty broadly as well. Um, it'll be good next time to sort of just hone in on some of the uh, specific things that you have at the exhibition uh, yeah. as well. Um, and definitely everybody check out the online sort of virtual uh, exhibit uh, of Unsettled as well because it, it is amazing. I've, I've actually looked at it quite a few times. I didn't go down there and get to see it. But, no, nah, thanks for um, having the answers. I'm really glad to have finally been able to come on the program. And, yeah, thanks for indulging me. And I, I know we covered a lot of ground. Shout out to everybody uh, for tuning in and listening to uh, this episode, uh, which marks 29 episodes. Uh, and I'm sure this episode is going to get us over the line of 100,000 downloads. So big shout out to everybody over the last almost two years that have shared, that have uh, listened and also donated uh, to Frontier War Stories. Just remember, if you head to Instagram and type in Frontier War Stories, uh, the official Instagram page will come up. Also, uh, in the bio, there's a link to donate uh, to the PayPal. But then also, if you Google Frontier War Stories, you can donate and become a patron and give as much or as little as you like. And all things go on to supporting the podcast. This year for the for Frontier War Stories, uh, I want to look at doing making it bigger and better, especially with all the lockdowns hopefully ending uh, throughout the year. I would love to take this podcast on the road and record in different communities uh, and go to different festivals where they're talking about uh, frontier conflicts and frontier wars. I also like to make some more merchandise and definitely a big shout out to anybody out there who would want to come on and uh, be a sponsor uh, uh, for the podcast because that's something that I want to look at doing as well. But as always, thanks everybody uh, for listening to the podcast uh, and stay tuned because bigger and better things are coming in 2022 for Frontier War Stories.